This morning is our third class. We'll have a final class next week looking at Paul and the way Paul dealt with Scripture. Uh, it's gone longer than I thought. I'd planned on spending two weeks on this. It expanded into four, uh, in part because I thought, what's the hurry? You know, we're going to have class next week anyway. It's got to be about something, so it might as well just spend a little more time. And so part of what I was trying to fit into the last five minutes of last week, I decided to expand into an entire class. And instead of your sheet saying, go study it on your own, I'll put something in there, maybe, that might help you study it. So that's where we are this morning. My introduction comes from a, a book. <coughs> when I was in high school, I was given a, a devotional book entitled, God is No Fool. This is not the cover that was on it when I was in high school. This is the most recent printing of it out of Amazon.com where I got this cover. And uh, I heartily recommend it. I heartily recommend you read it. I don't care what your age is. There are some great things in there. It's also a wonderful gift to give high school kids. And as we're starting to get close to graduation, for example, and you're thinking, gee, I want to get so-and-so or so-and-so something, this is a, a book you can probably find it at Barnes & Noble. You can certainly order it off Amazon.com. It's a wonderful book. The devotional, it's 99 devotionals. Number 43 really made an impression on me in high school. It was entitled Bits and Pieces. And, and the way it went, it had its, its devotional plus kind of uh, the woman who wrote it, it Lois Cheney, is uh, a communications professor, or was at the time at Bowling Green. She's since retired. But uh, so she writes it in ways to help communicate. So it's got kind of an artsy, tartsy look to it as she writes it. But she says, bits and pieces, bits and pieces. People, people important to you, people unimportant to you, cross your life. They touch it with love, maybe carelessness, and they move on. And there are people who move on, and you breathe a sigh of relief and wonder why you ever came into contact with them. And then there are people who move on, and you breathe a sigh of remorse, and you wonder why they had to go away and leave such a gaping hole. Children leave parents. Friends leave friends. Acquaintances move on. People change homes. People grow apart. Enemies hate and move on. Friends love and move on. And you think on the many people who've moved into your hazy memory. You also look on those who are present right now in your life. You can wonder. She ends it uh, saying, I believe in God's master plan in our lives. He moves people in and out of each other's lives and each leaves his mark on the other. You find you're made up of bits and pieces of everyone who's ever touched your life and you're more because of it and you'd be less if they had not touched you. Pray to God that you accept the bits and pieces in humility and wonder and never question and never regret the bits and pieces. 
I like that. I still like that. I am made up of bits and pieces of all the people I've ever come into contact with. Some of them I've enjoyed the contact. Some of them I could not wait for them to move on. But I'm still, they've, they've affected me. And it goes both ways. Everyone you come into contact with, you affect. Maybe it's good. I've got a sore back today and a sore ego today because I came into contact with Lewis at the racquetball court yesterday and he's left me this way. <laughs> the bit part references the way I play racquetball yesterday. Um, but I look at the Apostle Paul and I think about the bits and pieces we know about his life and how he comes to read Scripture and interpret Scripture and write about Scripture. And we know that he grew up in a Bible home. He grew up in a home that, that stood on the Scripture. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. They believed in the Bible. He had devout parents who were committed to God. He was sent to study at the feet of one of the most prestigious rabbis, not only of his day, but of all time within Judaism. A rabbi still quoted by Jewish scholars today. Rabbi Gamaliel. We know that Paul studied at the temple. We know that the bits and pieces of Paul's life as he came into contact with different people in different circumstances changed and taught and altered and molded the way he viewed Scripture. But I want to tell you, if those were bits and pieces, there was also a big chunk of someone Paul met that radically affected the way he changed Scripture. And that was the man he met on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ. And after Paul met Jesus, Paul never saw Scripture the same again. It's as if he had been in a dark room, able to tell shapes and, and not bump generally into the furniture. But as he saw Jesus, the light came on. And he saw with clarity what previously had been shadows. And he understood Scripture in a way he'd never understood it before. And we've looked at this. We've looked at Paul who quotes the Old Testament 93 times in his writings. We looked at Paul who not only that alludes to the Old Testament hundreds of times in his writings. We looked at where Paul does it, and he's dead on. We looked at how Paul does it, and he changes the translations to better fit what, what he uses a different version, we might say, to better fit the point he's trying to make. But we have saved, and where we want to drill down today is uh, where Paul's quotes of the Old Testament don't really seem to be from the Old Testament at all. Anybody ever watch detective shows? Our daughters have turned us on to one. The younger daughter. Anybody watch Monk? In honor of him, I have exactly 50 slides. Not 49, not 51. No. Um. Monk is uh, um, 
quite the detective. He can figure out who done it. He can find what needs to be found. He's the modern Sherlock Holmes. How would Monk do? How do we do when we try to detect where Paul's scriptures come from on these few times? It's difficult. When I was talking to Becky about this class a couple of weeks ago, I said, Becky, there are some times where Paul quotes scripture and we have trouble finding the scripture. She said, well, where? And I said, well, we're going to talk about it in class. She said, well, I would like to talk about it now. And I said, well, I'm sorry, you have to come to class. And she said, well, I'll still come to class, but I want to know now. And I said, tough. So, Beck, this class is for you. <laughs> there are five places, five places where Paul's quoting Scripture, it seems, by the way he's writing, where we have problems figuring it out. So these are our five, okay? The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. And it says, but as it is written, and those are the, that's an introductory phrase that Paul and others would use to show they're quoting scripture. Shows the source of where they're coming from. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart imagined. The heart was the seat of where you think. So really for our purposes, now that we know how the body works a little better, think brain. You know, what no heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Number one. Number two. Ephesians 4.8. Therefore, it says, and that shows he's quoting scripture, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Third passage, Ephesians 5.14. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's not in there. It's not in the Old Testament. Fourth, 1 Corinthians 15.45. Thus, it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And last, 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, some of these passages have something to do with scripture, and you'll find parts of them, or you'll find some of them in the Old Testament, but certainly not the way Paul's writing them. So what do we do with these passages? Oh, some might say Paul, bless his heart, had a bad memory. But I'm sorry, he quotes too much scripture dead on accurate for me to go there. Not to mention the fact that I think the hand of God is in his writing and it's scriptural and inspired by God and not God's not going to have faulty memory Paul sitting there misquoting scripture. So I set that argument aside. 
Now, some people say, well, maybe Paul had a different Bible than we have, and there are parts of it missing. Eh, that's goofy. Okay, we've got the Bible. We've got Paul's scriptures. There's plenty of, of proof of that. And the idea that there were somehow some Old Testament scriptures floating around that neither the Jews nor the Christians managed to keep track of is silly. I don't buy that either. Some people say, well, Paul was a mischievous guy and he may have been writing this on April 1st. No, Scripture is no April Fool's joke. Paul was not trying to skate one by his readers. Paul knew what he was doing, and God certainly was at work. And we have the Scriptures in front of us, and what these are are not five problem Scriptures. They're not. There are five passages that give us a great opportunity to learn something special. These aren't problems. These are opportunities. Because Paul was clearly doing something. God was clearly doing something. And we get to be the detectives and figure it out. This is CSI Houston. This is, uh, uh, except no crime was committed, but, but we're monk. We get to do this. So let's do it together, and here's what I'd like to do. I want to give you some ideas, some principles that help you perhaps understand these passages. Help us approach these passages in an in a academically and intellectually honest way that is consistent with our integrity we hold for Scripture. So we start with the first principle. And that is, Paul, as he's writing, Paul knew that he spoke. Oh, yes, wait a minute, Mr. Bowman. Wait, wait, hey, 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 Mr. Bowman. Paul spoke as a messenger of God. He knew that. Paul never thought that he was simply Paul, simply out on his errands our daughters will frequently say to us rachel came home from school rachel said what do we have planned tomorrow because that's our errand well paul was not just an errand fellow who said let's see plans today uh, i've got to write to corinthians i've got to uh, uh convert the people in ephesus i i have to oh i gotta remember to say my prayers and eat and I've got to um, um, wash my feet. These weren't simple tasks for the fellow. When Paul spoke, he spoke with authority because he knew the Spirit of God was at work in him. He saw the evidence, not simply in the healings, not simply in, but, but in the transformed life that he lived and the way God worked through him to reach the people. To fulfill the promises of Scripture. Jesus on the road to Damascus did not say to Paul, Hey, uh, stop killing the church, okay? 
get after it. He said, I'm choosing you. You're mine. I'm sending you. My spirit in you is going to reach out to the world for me. You take my words and you go on my mission and you do what I tell you to do. And you'll get beaten, you'll get scorned, you'll be shipwrecked, you'll be set upon by robbers, and you'll count it all joy because you're doing something higher and bigger than you are. You're doing my business with my words. And Paul never shies away from telling people that. Think about that first letter to the Corinthian church. He says, to the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. And then just a couple verses later, he says, to the rest, I say, and he says, I, not the Lord. Because he's not quoting Jesus, but he's no less telling them what they ought to do. He says, don't get confused. I'm not quoting Jesus here, but I'm telling you this. He keeps on saying, now concerning the betrothed, I don't have a command from the Lord. Jesus didn't speak about this that I know of. But I'm going to tell you, as someone who's trustworthy, what you ought to do. Paul has no qualms about speaking on behalf of God. Bearing God's message, whether as the FedEx man or Mr. Postman. Yesterday, we lost a 90-year-old icon in America, didn't we? Paul Harvey passed away. Do you remember Paul Harvey? And now you know the rest of the story. For those of you who are too young, Paul Harvey was the voice on the radio. And he would start telling some story, and he'd tell it chronologically, and it wouldn't be till the end, after the commercial break, that, that he'd get you with the zinger. And you'd go, aha, and have an aha moment. Oh, that's who he's talking about. Or, oh, that's how that came about. And he'd say, and now you know the rest of the story. And that's how he would end it. Okay? Well, for Paul, Paul, he's got no qualms taking an Old Testament scripture. But having been confronted with Jesus and having the Spirit of God and being God's voice and God's messenger for the church, he has no trouble taking those scriptures and telling the rest of the story as he gives the scripture. So, for example, Paul might start with an Old Testament passage, but then he would finish it with how he understood God's voice to be on the matter. And God, through the church and the Holy Spirit, has told us Paul's writings are scripture. And we can go to the bank on them, if you will. So, for example, let's look at that first passage, the 1 Corinthians 2, 9 one, where Paul says, But as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God's prepared for those who love him. Let's throw it up there, and we'll throw up Isaiah 64, 4, because it's the closest passage to it in the Old Testament. Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old no one is heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Now see how they line up. I'll help. Paul says, as it's written, what no eye has seen. Isaiah says, no eye has seen a God besides you. Okay, that's close enough. 
nor ear heard. Well, yeah, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. Paul's got that part too. But look, Paul says, nor the heart of man imagined. Well, that's not in Isaiah. It's not there. Paul says, what God has prepared for those who love him, which is sort of like God acts for those who wait for him, but not precisely. So what do we do? Do we take the scholars who say, ooh, Paul must have had a radically different Old Testament Isaiah than we have? No, because Paul quotes out of our Isaiah plenty of times dead on right. What we need to do is understand what Paul's done here. And to do that, we first need to take Isaiah 64.4 in context. In Isaiah 64, what the prophet is saying is that God's unique. God's not like any other God. He's not like any of the idols of man. All of those idols of man that are just men on steroids, just our women on fertility pills, you know, it's just uh, what man can imagine. And, Paul, and, and Isaiah says God's unique. God intervenes in the lives of his faithful people in ways that nobody outside of God's children has ever seen a God do. No one has ever even heard of it. God's unique and God intervenes on behalf of his people. Now you take a passage and you be Paul and you've got a passage that says God intervenes on behalf of his people in ways that those who follow idols can't have never seen and they've never heard. And what Paul wants you to know is as unique as Isaiah could say God is and special because of those things, God himself has shown himself to be incredibly unique. I know, Becky, that's not a right grammatical construction. You can't, if you're unique, you can't be incredibly unique. You're either unique or you're not. But if we could say it and be grammatically correct, we would say God's incredibly unique. God's intervention, Paul wants you to know, exceeds even what Isaiah thought. Even what Isaiah prophesied. Oh, Isaiah had the no eye. He had the no ear. But Paul says, not even a heart or a mind has ever imagined the way God really intervened, not simply for those who wait for him, but for those who love him. God's intervention in your life and God's intervention in my life exceeds even what Isaiah saw. It's like Isaiah to the 10th power. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. Paul's not worried his credibility is going to be impeached and attacked because he didn't quote Isaiah right. He's not quoting Isaiah right on purpose because he's not into the quote thing as we talked about. That's not even their convention back then. Paul's making a point. And his point is God intervenes in your life. You can see it in the act of Jesus Christ. Something Who honestly ever would have dreamed that God would do that out of love for you and me? So, 1 Corinthians 2.9, eh, take it off. Let's look at another concept. Paul and 
other early Christians understood the words of the Christ and the apostles to be Scripture. And here's the picture I've <laughs> colored for you this morning. Think of an underground aquifer, uh, um, water that flows underground. And that's the Word of God. And the Word of God that flows underground and is a foundation below us, it bubbles up. Oh, it bubbled up into the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament becomes an expression of some of God's Word that's there. We don't see it, the, the Word of God in its fullness, but we see it where it bubbles up, and it bubbled up in the Old Testament. It also bubbled up in the words of Christ, the Word of God. And it also bubbled up. Oh, by the way, Paul noted that in Galatians 6, 2. He said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You can have your Old Testament law, but the law of God is also found in the words of Christ. Peter says it in 2 Peter 3, 16, where he says, hey, don't be wicked and evil like the people who twist Scripture uh, uh, and twist Paul's writings like they do the rest of Scripture. Because Peter recognized not only the writings of Christ, but God spoke His Word through His apostles. The reason so much of Scripture we regard as Scripture is because it comes from, in the New Testament, the mouths of the apostles. Or at least has their approval and authority. And that's what the church used as its plumb line, its measuring stick, to decide what belongs in the canon and what doesn't. So you've got, for example, this passage right here, 1 Timothy 5.18. Let's throw it up there. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, 1 Timothy 5.18, the scripture says it. We look in the Old Testament, where do we find it? Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Paul nailed that word for word, didn't he? But after that, Deuteronomy 25 starts talking about Levites and how they get married. Doesn't say the laborer deserves his wages. You know where that comes from? Jesus Christ had 70-plus disciples that he sent out on a mission. And he said, when you go, don't take a knapsack. Just take the sandals on your feet. Don't take money. When you go into a town, you find people. If they'll, they, they'll, they'll put you in a house. You eat what they give you to eat. And that's okay to do because a laborer deserves his wages. That comes from Jesus. You've got the scripture saying you shall not muzzle an ox, but you want to know where the laborer deserves his wages comes from? Luke 10, verse 7, remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide for. The laborer deserves his wages. Paul nailed it, word for word. Of course, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul's for several of his mission journeys, parts of them. The research Luke had done into this produced this is a teaching of Christ for Paul it is scripture the teachings of Christ they go under that word of God the laborer deserves his wages so oh gee did Paul have a faulty memory no take that one off 
We're down to three. Ephesians 5.14. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, you're not going to find that in the Old Testament. Oh, there's a passage in Isaiah that says, Awake and shine. But we've got a song, Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. You remember that song? Okay, well, that's about as close as the Isaiah passage. It's hilarious. You read some of these scholars and they'll say, well, Paul has put together these nine different verses from Isaiah. And it's like the code system in some elaborate MI5 movie or something on 24 where they took a word here and a word here and a word there and a word there. And yeah, you put them all together. Oh, you could take a newspaper article and probably find most every one of those words at some point. That's not what Paul did. This isn't hard. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is something that's apostolic somewhere, somehow. We may not know how, but the way Paul wrote it, it's in three stanzas. It's a triptych. It's a three, it's a poem. It's song lyrics. They had a song. All Paul's doing is quoting one of their early church songs. You didn't know he played electric guitar, did you? That's what it was. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's where it's written. That's what it is. That's where it says it. I can't tell you which apostle wrote it or which apostle didn't write it. I can tell you the apostle Paul approved it and gave it credibility as Scripture and said, this is right. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. F.F. Bruce thinks it's a song they sang at baptisms. We don't know exactly when, but I'll tell you this. You can read Clement of Alexandria, who wrote a hundred years later. And Clement of Alexandria gives us a second verse to the song. Clement of Alexandria, by a hundred years later, it's got a second verse. It's got a wake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Word for word, letter for letter, exactly the way Paul wrote it. But then he adds a second verse. The Lord, the Son, and it is S-U-N, the Son of the resurrection, He that is begotten before the morning star, He that dispenses life by His own rays. This was a song that the early church sang, that Paul accords as Scripture. Because not only was the Old Testament the Word of God, not only was Christ the Word of God, but the Word of God would also bubble up some with apostolic authority. Okay? So, Ephesians 5.14, eh, that's not a problem scripture. Now, I did that very carefully so no one would accuse God of being a longhorn. I could have done this where it had hook'em horns. I also could have eventually worked this down to an Aggie. I didn't do either. Because everyone knows the Lord was a Red Raider. (laughs) Sometimes Paul takes an Old Testament verse and he actually changes it for teaching effect. My dad was famous for taking old sayings and changing them for effect. I remember Valentine's Day. 
He wrote us a Valentine poem. Roses are red, violets are blue. Most poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. (laughs) Now, Dad didn't have a faulty memory. Dad wasn't struggling over trying to get the poem just right. Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came the spider and sat down beside it, and she beat the tar out of it with a spoon. (laughs) It's another one of Dad's. (laughs) Told simply for effect. Now, Paul was, I'm sorry, Dad, rest your soul, a bit more sophisticated than Dad when he came to quoting and and making changes for effect, but he still was a sculptor who would make changes to make it what he needed it to be for his point. Let's go, for example, here to Ephesians 4.8. That's the passage where Paul says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now that actually is very, very close to a psalm. Psalm 68.18 says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. You see the difference? Paul writes, gave gifts to men. The psalmist says, receiving gifts from men, among men. See, if, if we do it kind of in a picture image, the psalm king, he's got the crowd coming with him. He's leading the train, and he's getting, the, the king is getting the spoils of war. He gets the, the booty from the invasion. The gifts are given to the king. And so the king leads the parade with all of the men and everybody, here, this is yours, oh conquering king, this is yours, this is yours. Paul quotes it. But Paul now has Jesus Christ in his mind and his brain, not a bit, not a piece, but a chunk that defines who he is. And Paul wants to make a point, and he's able to make it by going to that Old Testament Scripture and saying, but King Jesus, it's not that way. King Jesus won the war, and he gives the spoils, the goodies, the victory, bounty to his children, and to his people. That's the difference. And Paul uses the scripture to illustrate the magnificence of King Jesus and the honor at being in his train and why it is in that passage that he gave some to be teachers. It is an honor for me to get to teach this class. This class has zippo to do with me. If this class is effective at all from a teaching perspective, it's because God has given gifts to men and some of us have a gift that, or a responsibility or a charge to try and teach. If this class is successful, it's because there are a bunch of people who have a gift of administration 
a bunch of people who have a gift of service, a bunch of people who are even willing to set up chairs, who are willing to set up computers and Elmos and get the equipment and put it on the internet and get the microphones and fill in when Mike's gone. I mean, it's because you have a gift of showing up and paying attention and getting the lesson. And, 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 and these are gifts that God's given us. So all credit and all glory goes to King Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. So these scholars who are all abuzz over Paul's got bad memory. Hey, get out of here. What do we have left? 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Let's look at it. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Well, you're getting the program so far. I'll tell you that my little rules are not rigid classifications. Oh, this is classification one. Or this is classification two. No, these are just generic ideas and sometimes... One bleeds into the other and they're fuzzy around the edges, but we can look at this and we can put it up there. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Throw it up to the closest thing we find. Genesis 2 says, the man became a living creature. Genesis 2, 7. Well, what do we have here? Well, Adam, uh, Paul adds the first man. He adds the word first. Paul adds the word Adam. Is he having trouble with his memory on this one? No. But when Paul's writing and speaking, he doesn't have 21st century English conventions. He's got the freedom to insert things to make it make sense, just like I have that freedom on my lesson. It's just if I'm quoting in my lesson or in a legal brief, I'm required if I do an insert for it to make sense, generally I put it in brackets. So if Paul were writing my lesson today, he probably would have done it this way. The first man, Adam, became a living being. He wants to underscore that Adam was the first man. As opposed to Jesus who, in a sense, is a last Adam. And became a life-giving spirit. Now that's separated out. Some scholars say, well, just end the quote. Because he didn't have quotation marks either. So in the quote at the beginning, and that explains why that last sentence isn't in Genesis. Other scholars say, no, this is Paul taking it and teaching it a next step and drawing a contrast. Next week, we're going to get into this in more detail, not this passage, but the idea of how Paul uses types and analogies and, and maybe even allegories out of the Bible. And, and it's a fascinating area of study. But, you know, this isn't the problem all so the problems are gone and so is our time we've covered now the three issues two of the three issues i really wanted to cover with paul in scripture that quotations don't always match up we did last week that we don't always find the passage we did this week next week i want us to look at some surprising interpretations that paul has for scripture here are our points to take home one, no eye has seen it, no ear has heard it, no heart or mind has ever imagined the way God intervenes on behalf of his people. Honestly, honestly, whoever would have thought that almighty creator God would take and, and count his, 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 his completeness, his holiness, his, his awesomeness, 
who would count it as nothing and deliberately set it aside and take on the form of a human being. Honestly, who could have dreamed that a God would do that? Who could have dreamed that the one almighty God would have done that and once doing it, once becoming a human, submit himself in humility and let other humans run roughshod over him? Let them embarrass, humiliate, scorn, ridicule, spit on him. Abuse, mistreat. Whoever would have thought the Lord God Almighty would let puny, rotten, sinful, terrible, evil, wicked people lord themselves over him. All because he loves us. And that was the path for redemption. So my question to you is, who could imagine that? Scripture would be the most fantastic work of fiction there ever has been if it had no basis in reality. So fantastic, I dare say no one could have created it. This is not, this is not the way a God would ever be conceived of as behaving by us. When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men and women. He gave gifts to you. You know, I've got Rachel, I've got Rebecca, and I've got Sarah in here this morning. We have Rachel home so little that her sisters want to sit with her even in Sunday school class. So they get out of their class this morning to come here. I endorse them in their class usually because they need to be there. Their class teacher does a better job at that age for them than I do. But they want to be here to be with Rachel. One of the things I pray for our children, and Becky prays for our children every day, is that they will grow up cultivating the gifts God's given them. To use those gifts in his kingdom. Will is 24. He gets his master's degree in a few months. But I still pray that for him every day. And I tell you this not only so you'll pray for the others in your lives that you care for. But I'll tell you this because I want to challenge you. What are you doing with your gifts? What are you doing with what God's given you? He gave it, Paul says, to you for the common good. Not for you to go into your house and stare at. But for you to use. Last point for home. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. does and we reflect his light hopefully so this little light of mine I'm going to let it shine hide it under a bushel no I'm going to let won't let Satan it out 
because we're bits and pieces of everybody that comes into contact with us. And so my challenge to you is, how does your light shine? What effect do you have on people? Do you bring them closer to the Lord? Even if they never know it, just by loving them, by tending to your business, by doing what's right, by letting your light shine. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is my prayer of blessing that you will take everyone who hears this message and impress anew or fresh upon them that you have bestowed gifts to them for their usage to your purposes, that they'll find those gifts, discover those gifts, cultivate those gifts, use those gifts like they've never done before, like we've never done before. That our our, our, our lives will shine your light that has taken us from the darkness, that has shown us who you are in ways that no mind could conceive. Absent your revelation, Lord, we would have no knowledge of the incredible love and provision you've made for us. But through your revelation, we praise your name for who you are and for what you've done and for the promises we have for the hope of glory that waits not just for Pat and Sonny Hooker, but for all of us when we leave this life and spend eternity in your presence with our families in Christ. Through whom we pray, amen.